Hello and welcome to episode 6 of International History Now, a podcast dealing with topical issues and historical perspective. We are your hosts, Yorgos Yanakopoulos and Dina Gusenova, and today's subject is Karabakh in history. As we recorded this conversation, a six-week war in Nagorno-Karabakh, the troubled territory between Armenia and Azerbaijan, known in English under its Russian name, had just ended with a ceasefire under the auspices of Russia and Turkey. Since 1994, Nagorno-Karabakh brokered an existence as an autonomous region. The fortunes of its population supposedly entrusted to international intermediaries, the so-called Minsk Group. While the UN Security Council had ruled to restore the territorial integrity of Azerbaijan, de facto throughout this period, Nagorno-Karabakh was controlled by Armenia. Until the autumn of 2020, when Azerbaijan, with support from Turkey and Israel, carried out a military operation which resulted in the transfer of a large part of Nagorno-Karabakh, previously controlled by Armenia, to Azerbaijan. Now, Armenian refugees fled from here to Armenia or to Russia, while the Azerbaijani population expelled from Karabakh in the early 90s is preparing to return to North Karabakh. Among the ruins of towns and villages are both Armenian and Azerbaijani cultural monuments, some of which document a kind of coexistence that now seems unimaginable. The Nagorno-Karabakh dispute is an international question with roots in the nationalization of empires in the 19th century and then again in nationalizing tendencies around both Soviet integration and disintegration. Throughout the early modern period, the long-term imperial hegemon in the region was Persia. The 19th century was dominated by Russian imperial expansion in the Caucasus. For imperial Russia, Azerbaijanis and Armenians alike had the status of inarotse, foreigners. It is the 20th century with the use of modern ethno-nationalism under the Soviet and later post-Soviet regimes that saw the most violent military conflicts in this specific region. Armenian and Azerbaijani populations were repeatedly pitted against each other throughout the 20th century. Yet this period also saw the emergence of two semi-autonomous Soviet socialist republics, Soviet Azerbaijan and Soviet Armenia, each with their own state-sponsored national histories. At the end of the Russian Civil War, the Soviet authorities had assigned the region of Nagorno-Karabakh to Azerbaijan. As the Soviet Union collapsed, the early 90s saw pogroms against Armenians in Baku and Sumgait, but also the burning of the Karabakh city of Kojali and the expulsion of the remaining Azerbaijanis from Karabakh. At the same time, the destruction and neglect of cultural heritage in these Caucasus regions, including North Karabakh and the coastal area of Sumgait, formed landscapes of desolation and economic destitution. In today's program, we would like to explore Nagorno-Karabakh in history through the lenses of both political conflict and cultural interactions. We are joined today by Ron Suni. Ron is a William H. Sewell Jr. Distinguished University Professor of History and Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan. Ron's interests revolve around the history of the non-Russian nationalities of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, with a regional emphasis on South Caucasus. More recently, he has written a prize-winning history of the Armenian Genocide, and this year he has just published two books, 
a collection of essays on Stalinism and the fate of the Soviet experiment with Verso, and a biography of young Stalin with Princeton University Press. We're also joined by Zaur Gasimov. Zaur is based at the University of Bonn, where he's working on 20th century Eastern European history with a focus on Russia, Eastern Europe, and the Middle East. He has published widely on Russia, Turkey, and the Caucasus region. He's also the author of a historical dictionary of Azerbaijan, and he is currently working on uh, Eastern European specialists in Turkey's uh, Republic. Zaur, welcome to the program. Recently, you uh, gave an interview to The Voice of America, where uh, you tried to unpack and discuss the different kinds of dynamics at play uh, when one looks at the Nagorno-Karabakh region as an international question, seeking some kind of solution. So I'd like to start this by just asking your views on what is at stake currently in the region and and how can we think or how can we sketch rather a solution in what seems to be an insoluble conflict? The Karabakh conflict since the late 80s and the war that lasted several years in the early 90s was bloody one and caused hundreds of thousands of IDPs and refugees. This period of time, since the ceasefire of 1994, had to be used by the international community in order to solve the situation, to convince both Azerbaijani and Armenian side to find a way to each other. And it was a chance for the international community to implement the UN regulations on the Karabakh conflict. I guess that the entire situation around Armenian-Azerbaijani confrontation in general and in and also around Karabakh in particular shows how inefficient was also European diplomacy and how inefficient was the Minsk group of the uh, OEC, of the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe. I mean, the four resolutions of the Security Council of uh, United Nations organization remained neglected for years, even for decades. Uh, you're suggesting in a way that we really, in the first instance, shouldn't look much beyond the breakup of the Soviet Union in the late 80s and understanding the conflict. Um, I don't share the standpoint um, uh, that Armenians and uh, Azerbaijanis are sort of uh, uh, eternal uh, enemies, foes whatsoever. Both communities, both communities proved not only in the Caucasus but uh, also in in uh, Tabriz and in other places that they can uh, coexist, they can live together. And um, I, I would say that it was a Soviet random federalization plus the Soviet practices to communicate between ethnic communities that caused the emergence of the conflict in Karabakh. By the way, not only there, but also in Abkhazia, South Ossetia, and Transnistria. The further aspect to name is, um, and to blame uh, was a Soviet mismanagement in the 80s. That's why I would, I would focus on the, on the 80s particularly during Gorbachev's perestroika. It was his anti-alcohol campaign that shook the entire region of the Caucasus. You should imagine that Karabakh's local economy was very dependent on vineyards, on production of wine, brands, other stuff. And just imagine Moscow ordered to destroy vineyards, close the wine factories. There were more than 10 in Karabakh. 
that meant not only a huge strike on local and regional economy, but also that meant unemployment. The authors of perestroika and of the so-called dry law, Sohoizakon, did not think about alternatives for the region. I can hardly say about, about any confrontation in, in, in the pre-19th century period, but they were intercommunal um, confrontations between Armenians and Azeris. In Baku in 1918, um, there was confrontation in Karabakh as well uh, during the first independence of Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, the places like Tophana, Sumgayit, Hojali are places of memory of sorrow for, for the both communities. Zawur, you are referring here to the events in the Karabakh city of Khodjali in 1992 and in the coastal and industrial city of Sumgayit. So the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan began in the late 80s when the predominantly Armenian population um, of the enclave demanded independence from Azerbaijan. Um, But in response, pogroms against Armenians started in Azerbaijan, so Sumgayit in 1988 and in Baku in 1990. And then, with the help of the remnants of the Soviet army, Armenia seized, together with Nagorno-Karabakh, some neighboring Azerbaijani territories, from where several hundred thousand Azerbaijanis were expelled, and the population of the village of Kojali was then completely exterminated. In the same time, the history of Armenian-Azerbaijani cultural relations is not that of, of only clashes or ethnic hatred, but of uh, centuries long living together. Look at Sayat Nova, for instance, it's an amazing Ashuk, a traditional singer, an Armenian whose life was intertwined with that of Tiflis. He sang in Armenian and Georgian language, and particularly in Azerbaijani. There were thousands of inter-ethnic marriages um, between Azeris and Armenians in the Soviet period, cases of bilingualism. Uh, both in Georgia and in Iran, uh, you have both communities living together in their everyday life. And I guess that, that shows us um, quite, quite clearly that um, there, is, um, there, is, there is a distrust in the region now between two communities. But I guess um, it's, uh, it's also the duty uh, of, of intellectuals and of political class in the both uh, countries to bring them together and to bring the societies to the, um, uh, together because uh, we cannot change geography. And we're listening to a 1943 romance sung by the star Soviet tenor, nicknamed Bülbül, the Nightingale, who hailed from Karabakh. We're also joined by Ron Suni. Ron, thanks for joining the program. Throughout the 90s, you wrote on the Karabakh question a fair bit. Uh, In the beginning of the decade, you argued that Nagorno-Karabakh could not exist as an independent entity, and you even went as far as to say that the Armenians and Azerbaijanis simply do not have any affection for each other, and you proposed the separation of the region. In the end of the 90s, you put forward another solution to the conflict, this time, you know, the creation in the region of a new structure of shared sovereignty, 
and made allusions to the Kosovo example, you know, in the early 90s. Yet here we are 30 years later. Can the Karabakh question be ever solved? Is it perhaps even misleading or does it even make sense to frame it as a question requiring some kind of solution? I think you remember better than I do all the positions I might have taken. Uh, my own memory is that in general, I always thought that that as these problems could be solved and could be resolved. Uh, my own experience as a young scholar in the Soviet Union began in the middle of the 1960s, and I visited uh, both Armenia and Baku and did research uh, in Armenia uh, on the, my first book, which was about Baku, the Baku Commune, Class and Nationality in the Russian Revolution. I also wanted to work in Baku at the time, but when I went to the door of what was then called the Stepan Shalomyan Institute of Party History, they wouldn't even let me in. When I went back to Moscow, Moscow said, we can get them to let you. And I said, don't bother. I have plenty of material. So I never I never got that. But I visited Baku many times. I had an aunt there. And so I had a good sense of what life was like there. Um, and my sense was that, you know, in the Soviet context, and we still had another 20 some years in, in the Soviet Union, uh, with a kind of imperial hand uh, dominating in the Caucasus, that the antagonisms and inequalities between these peoples could be resolved through increasing uh, liberalization or democratization and solving it by, by the regime trying to solve some of these, these problems. Of course, when push came to shove, so to speak, when in the uh, late 1980s Gorbachev lifted that imperial hand, uh, all of the resentments that had grown up in in the intervening years of Soviet power began to come up. And the Armenians in particular made a determined effort, both in Karabakh and even the Communist Party in Karabakh uh, and in Armenia, massive demonstrations to bring Karabakh into the Armenian Republic. And that was answered in Azerbaijan, regrettably, terribly, uh, by riots in Sumgayit and killings and, and then antagonism back and forth. I'm not sure who shot first uh, in this place or that place, but the thing exploded into the conflict we have today. So in the intervening years then, what do you have? You have increasing hostility. You have the, the, the hardening of the attitudes of hostility of one people against another. And you and Zaur and all are perfectly uh, cognizant of the ways in which this conflict is framed. For Armenians who had experienced genocide in 1915 at the hands of the Ottoman Turks, the Azerbaijanis are Turks. And the, the defeat in Karabakh, the recent defeat, uh, is uh, another genocide. So they have seen it through that lens of mass killing and genocide. This is not a genocidal situation. And the, 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 that, that, that escalates the, the tensions. On the Azerbaijani side, as far as I can tell, and Zawad can speak to this much more knowledgeably, because I have not been allowed to go back to, to uh, Azerbaijan in the intervening years since the collapse of the Soviet Union. I tried a couple of years ago and I was told by the Azerbaijanis, we cannot guarantee your safety. And I'm a kind of wimp. I'm not going to go back and risk my life. So I miss Baku. I loved being there, but I'm not going to go back until things somehow change, which probably won't happen in my lifetime. 
So on the Azerbaijani side, as far as I can tell, at least when I was there, the attitude was that Armenians were a relatively privileged people. Uh, they they lorded over us. They're rather condescending towards us. And I would meet that attitude on the part of Armenians as well. They, you know, after all, they were Turks. They were they were an inferior people. Armenians are uh, wonderful people. I love being Armenian, but we often tend to be so proud of ourselves that we look down on everyone else, even Russians, even the dominant imperial power. We look down and we call them soch. We call them soch, socher, uh, onions, I guess, because of the onion dome. So, so those kinds of resentments, those kind of class antagonisms, those inflected by and reinforced by by ethnic and even religious differences, which are not, in my view, that powerful. The religion has is, is been less of a, 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 a motivator in this conflict, more as a marker of difference than anything that generates real, real uh, motivation. Uh, because of those things uh, and the destruction that's taken place, the killing on both sides, it's hard to imagine, at least in the short run, any kind of solution, regrettably. Yeah, thanks very much, um, uh, Ron. That's a very, very rich uh, set of comments. And I'm just wondering which end of them to really start picking on. But I wonder, maybe I could go back to the 60s, just because I'm I'm particularly fascinated by that decade. Um, and maybe it's also, it's the one that's much less familiar to the rest of us here. Like I know something about the decade from conversations with my grandfather, who's now 91. He's a, he's a writer of, of historical fiction, but he worked specifically for the For the Soviet Writers' Union, and he was responsible for managing sort of translations between linguistic groups, but particularly responsible for the Turkic languages. He he recalled something that happened in the 60s, which is, I think it was 1965, when the Armenian genocide was first mentioned publicly and started sort of permeating in wider social discourse. And I was just wondering if you could say something about specifically like the historiography of the Armenian genocide within Soviet context, and well, the Armenians of course, look back on the experience of the Armenian genocide. But that experience itself is, of course, mediated by historians and historical, the admissibility of this kind of, of discussing this kind of historical truth. So what were the conditions in the 60s for this kind of discussion, actually? That's a wonderful question. And it, it, it jogs my memory of the time. So in the 1960s, up to the 1960s, I would say, uh, Armenians knew about the genocide, obviously, and they, they, it was in their historical memory. But it was, I would say, when I was growing up in America and, and, and even when I first went to the Soviet Union, that uh, memory had been in some degree inarticulated, not articulated, somewhat repressed. Soviet policy was, did not promote genocide consciousness. Uh, the, Moscow was more interested in its own foreign policy relationships with Turkey, and it had enough troubles in the world, let alone to stir up these feelings among Armenians. And so when the, the uh, and even in the West, um, the, there wasn't that much real scholarship about the Armenian genocide, which of course was deliberately denied and repressed in Turkey and by, by official Turkish historiography. So it was a rather odd uh, moment. I remember when I first started doing Armenian history seriously, uh, I didn't even use the word genocide because I wasn't sure what actually had happened. Uh, and I had to learn. I used the words massacres and deportations. I knew enough from family lore and what was available 
that such a thing had happened in 1915, but not not uh, whether this fit the, the technical uh, legal definition of genocide. I discovered as I did my research that, my goodness, this was not only something that was genocidal and a genocide, but but in fact influenced Raphael Lemkin uh, when he generated the concept of genocide in, in the uh, early 1940s. And in Armenia, uh, that that memory was was not that prominent at first. Then in uh, in April uh, uh, May 1965, uh, uh, the the Armenians in Yerevan began demonstrating and calling for recognition of the genocide and for the return of our lands, Merhoger, and I presume this meant this meant, of course, the lands in Turkey, the bulk of historic Armenia, which of course had been lost. Uh, through the invasions of the Seljuks and the Ottomans and their conquest, and then the uh, the genocide itself, which eliminated the uh, Armenian population in the eastern vilayets and the eastern provinces of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and this was an amazing event because uh, such public demonstrations didn't take place in the Soviet Union. And uh, the Communist Party leadership, uh, in fact, was changed at that time. The the uh, head of the party was 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 dismissed. New party leadership came to, but there wasn't serious repression. That was really interesting. Uh, there wasn't serious repression, and um, uh, a year or so later, uh, the 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 Soviet uh, government allowed the Armenians to begin to commemorate this the genocide and built a monument to the genocide at Tsitsarnakabert. Uh, the the fortress of the of the nightingale on a prominent hill in Yerevan, and every year after that there would be these uh, demonstrations uh, marking the genocide, peaceful demonstrations. So there was a kind of in the sixties a kind of release in many Soviet republics of a little more recognition of the national history, much of which had been uh, very seriously repressed or limited in the Stalin years. And so a statue might be built not only to a revolutionary hero, but to Vartan Mamigonyan, the fifth century Armenian hero who lost the battle uh, at Ivarar, but preserved the faith for the Armenians. So the, a little bit of the, the giving in to the national sentiments, the, the attempt to sedimate, uh, to, to establish the, the, the Soviet regime more in the national soil uh, of each of these republics. Um, and so genocide consciousness then began to develop, but you know, you weren't allowed to write a lot about it. There were only a, a handful of articles and books about it in, in the, that Soviet period. But at the same time in the West, genocide scholarship with people like Richard Ovenisian and Vahakan Dadian began to develop. Now that would take decades before uh, real archival work would be done before Turkey would allow um, uh, scholars to go into the archives and and see what what was going on, etc. It would take until the early twenty, uh, 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 the early two uh, thousands, before this would actually begin to generate. And now we have this enormous and deep body of of literature in in all languages in in Armenian in. English, of course, French, German, and Turkish that you can read about. 
Thanks, Ron. I want to bring in Zaur on this, if you care to comment. You mentioned, Zaur, you, you, you grew up in Baku. I, I, I can recall the um, Ron talked about the monuments uh, in the Soviet Armenia. It was, uh, you had uh, like one of the most prominent uh, monuments in the downtown Baku was the, uh, and is uh, Azad Gadin, the uh, woman uh, who uh, throws down the headscarf and uh, was the uh, monument for the uh, women emancipation uh, from um, uh, Islamic religion. And uh, another big part was Babek. Uh, Babek was a, a myth of, uh, of, of a hero who started a rebellion uh, against the Arabs, so against the Arabs bringing Islam. And uh, it was a cult of certain atheism in the uh, Soviet Azerbaijani context, and uh, that caused the naming of the districts of Baku. There was a Babek district of, of Baku, and even Babek became a prominent uh, male name as well at that time. And there was a film, an opera, and a theater pieces uh, connected with that. Somehow, uh, both, uh, both uh, Armenia, uh, less Georgia, but uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan were somehow instrumentalized also for the Soviet policy in the Middle East. Uh, with regard to Azerbaijan, um, I mean, you know that the relations between Azerbaijan and Iran are uh, troubled ones until now. There is a huge mistrust on the both sides, and uh, it is uh, partly, partly connected with the Soviet policy of the uh, Soviet occupation also of the northern Iran during the Second World War and of the uh, partly artificial backing of the uh, Iranian uh, topics, uh, of course, very critical, very anti-Iranian uh, uh, topics in the literature and in the curriculum. And um, the Soviet practices uh, uh, misusing somehow the, uh, the uh, role of the um, ethnic groups in the Middle East uh, backed certain nationalist narrative that uh, traced and that uh, that uh, left uh, its its traces also until now in the perception of the of the uh, neighbors both in the region and in the uh, greater Middle East. And um, one should one should uh, uh, mobilize all those people. Um, I guess uh, uh, they are they are still alive also who. Uh, authored all this stuff, um, who uh, knew the language uh, of, of another community uh, in order to uh, to come together and maintain the dialogue. Uh, it is challenged now because, uh, I mean, uh, you have in the both societies uh, decades of, uh, of uh, belligerent rhetorics, of bellicose rhetorics. You have, uh, you, you witness that in social media, and uh, you see that also in the demographic uh, development, uh, there is a new generation, both in Armenia and in Azerbaijan, that doesn't share this Soviet past, Soviet legacy of um, intercommunal uh, communication. Ron, so the map of the emergent Soviet socialist republics of Azerbaijan and Armenia looked ethnically more homogeneous than these regions had ever been in history. And the Soviets failed to create a Transcaucasian Federation, so the ethnic principle prevailed. But some differences remained. As far as I understand, um, Yerevan, the capital of Armenia, was largely mono-ethnic, um, whereas Baku and its industrial suburbs 
continued to have a substantial Armenian, Jewish, and Russian population until the end of the Soviet Union, really, the 80s. Let me start this way. Um, first of all, you know, a lot of my career has been trying to uh, question and, and in some ways reverse the standard view that people in the West, particularly in America, had of the Soviet Union and of Soviet nationality policy. So when I grew up, the story that you were told in the United States was that this was a repressive regime, certainly had its repressive side to it. Nobody could deny that. It was a Russifying regime, and it, 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 it did not uh, allow people to develop their own national characters. And then I went to Armenia and to Azerbaijan and to Georgia, and I began to see that something else is going on here. That is, in some ways, this Soviet regime, for all its anti-nationalism and all its purported internationalism, in fact, has been generating national republics and a sense of national being and belonging within the restrictions and limits of Soviet ideology, at least in these three republics. Might be different in Ukraine. And certainly Estonians could complain, Latvians, about all the Russians coming in. But whatever was going on in, in the Caucasus, there's something else was going on. Armenia was more Armenian, Azerbaijan was more Azerbaijani. Uh, Georgia was more Georgian than it had ever been in its, its history within the limits of Soviet uh, the Soviet framing. So that was really interesting. The second thing I would mention was that the Soviets uh, took seriously, at least Lenin did, uh, the, the power of, of nationalism. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't want to promote nationalism, but they understood that at a certain stage of history, uh, this would be a, a, one of the things that was going to develop. And so they promoted, at least within their own limits, national culture, national cadres, a national film studio, a national radio station, national literature, books were published in these languages and so forth. Um, and and uh, in, in some ways, even though there were pre-existing in Tsarist times and way back into the primeval ooze, aspects of, of ethnicity, nationality, religion, language that certainly existed, in many ways, the Soviet project made out of those myriad ingredients, new kinds of national consciousnesses and new kinds of national coherence. So you could say that the Soviet project was the making of Soviet nations, Soviet Azerbaijan, Soviet Armenia, Soviet Georgia. And it was remarkably successful in certain ways. But it was also deeply contradictory. Because on the one hand, there was the, the embedding of nationality in many ways, but there was also the embedding of a more cosmopolitan Soviet identity. That is an identification with a transnational uh, uh, entity, the Soviet Union and Soviet patriotism. And so uh, an Armenian or an Azerbaijani would be being taught that they're, they're, they're ethnically this or that. They have certain national traits, and this would be particularly powerful after the death of Stalin when the really repressive period was, was lessened. And, but at the same time, you had this experience that you also had fought in the Second World War, and you also had, had been part of this incredible Soviet victory uh, over, over fascism. After all, it was the Soviet Union that destroyed Nazism, uh, uh, and that they should be given credit for that. Um, and, and then, so if you went to a place like Baku, 
uh, as I wandered about Baku in the, in the 60s and 70s, what did I actually see? In the center of the city was a large garden, a Freedom Square, I think it was called, or something like that. Maybe it's now Freedom Square. And, and there the, the remains of the 26 Baku commissars had been buried. So a central monument celebrated the Soviet experience. That Soviet experience in Baku, at least, was a very interesting one because Baku was a multinational city. It had, uh, it, it had, had a revolution that pitted in some respects, as in March 1918, uh, Azer, uh, local Muslims, uh, not yet called Azerbaijanis really, but local Muslims against the Armenians uh, uh, and the Soviets, etc., Ron, um, you are talking, just to clarify for uh, those who are listening, you are talking about Stepan Shaumian, the um, Armenian Bolshevik leader of the Baku Commune, who was later executed among the so-called 26 Baku commissars by British and white forces. So during the Russian Civil War, which preceded this, the Council of Baku um, under Shaumian endorsed pogroms against the Muslim populations of Azerbaijan. But at the same time, in Karabakh, Azerbaijani military forces burned villages and expelled the Armenian population. The monument to, the, to Shaomyan and the 26 uh, Baku commissars, which, by the way, after the Soviet regime fell, they disinterred all those bodies and destroyed the monument. But, but the, there was an attempt to Sovietize this city. So you might have the Maiden's Tower, you might have old, old Baku, but you also had the, the, the... And you had a big statue of Kirov, Sergei Kirov uh, on the hillside and so forth. And there was this kind of contradictory interplay between the national, which for many people didn't get their due, didn't get enough attention, and the Soviet. Uh, and you could be Azeri or Armenian or whatever, but you also had to be publicly Soviet as well. And if you wanted to succeed, then you had to develop a kind of cultural competence in being Soviet, learning the Russian language, uh, you know, subscribing to Soviet atheism, uh, learning at least the rudiments of Marxism. It's a particular reading of Marx, but, you know, Marxism-Leninism, and, and then you could make it in that way. So there was nation building in, in the Soviet uh, context, but there was also this, in some ways, contradictory modernizing Soviet uh, uh, patriot uh, building, uh, patriotism building as well. And they didn't always go together because national cultures are often backward looking. They want to preserve traditions, religion, the village or whatever. And the Soviets are about urbanization, industrialization, uh, you know, uh, engineering and all these things that don't have a very ethnic feature to them. Another dimension of this entangled you know, national and international problem is the dimension of the diasporas and the role that diasporas play or don't play in this conflict. Maybe, Ron, you have some thoughts on this? Well, Armenia is a diaspora nation, right? More people live outside of the little country of Armenia than live inside the country of Armenia. And that's been true of uh, Armenia as a diasporic population since the 11th century, since the coming of the Seljuks. So there's been a long history of, of the spurk as we call it in Armenian, the, the diaspora. Um, and the, the diasporas often in the history of, of nationalisms can be more nationalistic uh, than the people who actually live on the territory of the country itself. 
And given that in the Soviet times, uh, nationalism was discouraged and uh, Armenians had their own problems living in Armenia and throughout the Soviet Union. And by the way, the Armenians were one of the more diasporic populations within the Soviet Union. Georgians hardly ever left their republic. Well, one very prominent Georgian did leave his republic and became the ruler of the Soviet Union. But other, besides that, not, not Georgians stayed in Georgia. But Armenians uh, were highly educated, one of the most highly educated people, and a good chunk of their intelligentsia left the republic and went to Russia, went to Central Asia, went all over. I had relatives in Leningrad. I had relatives in Baku. I had relatives in Tashkent, uh, all over the Soviet Union. Uh, and they flourished, and they often then became uh, intermarried with other nationalities. But the non-Soviet diaspora was far more um, conscious and, and uh, nationalistically motivated, often making much more radical demands than ever would be made by most Armenians in Soviet Armenia. They were always calling for uh, the return of the lands in, in, um, in Turkey, uh, recognition of the genocide, particularly after the initial, uh, um, in, the initial way awakening in in the sixties of of these uh, events, and um, when Armenia became independent, uh, and Armenian Western diaspora political parties found a footing in Armenia, they were among the most articulate nationalists uh, in the political. Uh, environment in Armenia. Uh, I don't find that a healthy thing. Uh, they often are far removed from the majority of the people in Armenia who would rather find a more peaceful environment and better relations with Turkey. Uh, and even with Azerbaijan, you'd be surprised when you go to Yerevan and people will say, oh, you know, we had good relations with the Azerbaijanis. I don't know how this happened. It's the leaders who did this. It's all politics. The Azerbaijanis who lived in Armenia, hundred and some thousand Arme uh, Azerbaijanis lived in Armenia up to the late uh, 1980s. Oh, those, those Azerbaijanis, they had the best vegetables at the market and all of that. So there's this kind of nostalgic regret about what happened? Well, not among the diaspora types or the diaspora types who have come back to Armenia. Uh, when I was in Armenia uh, uh, in the 90s and gave a lecture about Caucasian culture and the interrelations between these people and how they share uh, many of the same things, music, food, dress, traditions, etc., uh, I was castigated. I was davajan, hyen in Turkish, davajan, traitor. Um, uh, because I had dared to say that we were all related in some kind of harmonious whole in, in Caucasian culture. And no, it was the, we needed more nationalism, These particularly these diaspora types would say. Can I just ask you, um, Ron, to say a little bit about your, your own family heritage in here? I mean, I know you are the grandson of a, um, a well-known uh, Armenian composer, but also a composer who was himself descended from a line of musicians who were, I think, at the court of, of the Kaja Shah? You know, it's funny way, I'm, I'm an Armenian from both sides. So you know that Armenians were, were divided between empires, between the Persian, the Tsarist Russian Empire, and the Ottoman Empire. So my, from my father's side, my father's side, uh, Greek Horsuni, the composer who you're talking about, uh, was born in Getabek, in what would have been the larger 
part of, of Karabakh. Um, and he was a Karabakhsi. And my his mother spoke Karabakh Armenian, which was a dialect that other Armenians couldn't even understand very well. So, and they, and he was educated in, and did his first concert at age 19 in the city that we call Shushi. I named the pussycat after that city, Shushi, uh, and that the Azerbaijanis call Shusha. Oh, you can see how great the difference is between these two peoples, right? They have one letter difference there. Um, and that city is now in the hands of the Azerbaijanis and Armenians are being forced out. But that city has gone back and forth, back and forth between the two peoples over, over a long period. Um, so, so Greek or Sunni was from Karabakh. He would, then went to Etchmiadzin, the holy city of Armenia, uh, and was educated in the seminary there. Then, then to um, uh, 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 St. Petersburg, where he was a student of Rimsky-Korsakov at the conservatory. Then back to Tbilisi, where he was a director of, of the music, a musical theater there. Uh, he had quite a career, but he also was a revolutionary. He was also a Dashnag, an Armenian nationalist. And when the communists came to uh, Georgia in uh, early 1921, he and his family fled to Batumi, Istanbul, and eventually to America. So that part of the family were Russian Armenians, we would say. On my mother's side, um, they're from the Ottoman Empire. My grandmother, my mother's mother, was born and raised in Diyarbakir, which is now part of what I would call Kurdistan, you know, Turkish Kurdistan. You can't say that in public in Turkey, but or at least in print, but you can, that, that it's, it was, it's a largely Kurdish city. It had been a Kurdish, Armenian, Turkish city before the genocide. And uh, her family fled from the Ottoman Empire after the 1894, 95, 96 Hamidian massacres. Uh, and and the parts of their family were killed. And somehow they made it to America after that. Um, my grandfather, my mother's father, uh, was from Yozgat, which is in central Turkey, a uh, very nationalistic city today. Uh, and and Yozgat was a Turkish-speaking city, and his first language was more Turkish than Armenian. Uh, I, the family lore is that he actually learned Armenian once he immigrated to America. After the 1908 revolution, there was a pogrom of Armenians in the city of Adana uh, on the Mediterranean. Uh, and after that, my 19-year-old grandfather decided, I'm leaving. And he left and came to America, met my grandmother, and eventually I appeared. And I should mention that uh, throughout this program, we'll be listening to music from Ron's grandfather. My favorite, and Ron, correct me if, if I'm not pronouncing it well, Ovduk Sarer. Oh, beautiful. Your Armenian is excellent. Ovduk Sarer. Oh, you mountains. It's gorgeous. me cry. That one makes me cry. A counterfactual. Could have been another road taken in the late 80s? Could there have been a way that would 
take us out of this prolonged conflict and prolonged you know, competing national narratives? Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm a great admirer of uh, Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev. He tried to do something great. He tried to reform this uh, scholaric uh, uh, ossified system at that point. Uh, and yet he failed miserably and destroyed his own country and, and the Soviet system. So, so, you know, it's a very contradictory figure. Um, when you look at what he did in the Karabakh situation, I called this in some writing I did many years ago. I found out today, I looked back, I first wrote about Karabakh in 1978. You know, no one cared about Karabakh in 1978, but there were already some rumblings going on there. In any case, uh, Gorbachev, I called this, uh, the, the, when Karabakh broke out in 88, I called it a test for perestroika. And I could now say it's a test that Perestroika did not uh, win. It, it failed this test. And uh, Gorbachev uh, had a, many different failings. Uh, one, he tried to do too much too fast. He wanted to carry out five or six different revolutions at once, turn the Soviet empire into a, a kind of federation of e e equal republics, uh, marketize the economy slowly but eventually, um, democratize the political system, give up Eastern Europe, pull out of Afghanistan, end the Cold War. Uh, I mean, it was just too much. No state probably could ever have survived such an ambitious uh, undertaking without a leader who was willing to be tough, even brutal, while making these changes. And when it came to the nationality question, and when they had to approach what to do about Karabakh, uh, they were fearful, they were hesitant, they had various uh, uh, meetings, even at Central Committee plenum, and they decided that, that maybe we can, we can increase the, the investment in Karabakh rather than solving the problem in a more fundamental way uh, and allowing uh, you know, the Leninist point of view, national self-determination, to bring Karabakh into Armenia. That would have set off perhaps and Gorbachev is probably right here, maybe this was an insolvable problem, a cascade of other requests and demands to shift borders, and that they were not ready to do. In other words, Gorbachev's great problem was that he didn't do what the Chinese did, which was sequence the various reforms that he was going to do, and when needed, crack down hard on those who went too far too fast. That was not in his makeup, that wasn't in his... DNA, uh, and ultimately, uh, he was no Abraham Lincoln. When Lincoln was was uh, faced by a rebellion in in the southern states, he launched a war uh, and and kept the union together. Gorbachev, in fact, didn't do that, and regrettably, in my opinion, this experiment, uh, which was becoming and moving towards democracy and federation, in fact, collapsed. Time for another piece by Grigor Suni, set to the words of Armenian poet Rofanes Tumanyan, Yeti Meor, if one day you visit my tomb. Oh, 
de Ron mentioned that uh, uh, with regard to the um, a nation building process and the sort of a privileged situation the South Caucasian had in the Soviet uh, system, uh, only in three constitutions of Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, the native language, the local language um, had a status along with Russian. So the situation was, uh, was um, absent uh, both in, in, in uh, Central Asia and in Ukraine and so on. Um, that um, along with that, the economic situation in Armenia and in Azerbaijan was uh, much better in 70s and in the first part of 80s um, uh, than in central Russia and was incomparably better than in Central Asia. In 88, 89, the entire Soviet economy uh, was in crisis. And for the Caucasians, it was not only the uh, unemployment, regional unemployment in Caucasus, uh, in Abkhazia, and in, in, in some other parts, uh, which were really very dependent on, on uh, um, uh, wine um, industry. Uh, that meant also the uh, sort of economic shock as well, plus the uh, forced migration and, and uh, stuff like that. I mean, that was a uh, very dramatic, very uh, speedy um, aggravation of the economic and social situation the Caucasians had to cope with. That was something they were not accustomed to. So, I mean, uh, that maybe, uh, maybe doubled the shock of the uh, of the situation during perestroika and uh, boosted the radicalization of the political process of the communication uh, between party and society and uh, between the between the different communities as well well i want i want to applaud what zao said but like and and if i may say it sounded like a, a true soviet like a person who grew up in cosmopolitan Soviet uh, Baku. That is, um, whatever else we say about the Soviet Union, and you, some of you have experienced this on your skin more than I did, um, the, there was, in the ideology and in many of the practices and in the films and the literature that one read, from the old Russian classics right through to certain Soviet classics, there was a kind of humanism. There was an internationalism. Uh, there was a hopefulness and optimism about progress, right? Uh, so, and what I see in many people still, the older generation, when I visit uh, Moscow, Petersburg, uh, Tbilisi, and Yerevan, and I wish I could go to Baku, what I see is this old, these positive qualities of what they pejoratively called Savok, you know, the Soviet character. Um, and there is a hopefulness, you know, there are possibilities and there are examples in the world, not of bitter ethnic conflict as we have now, but of people actually living together. They don't have to love each other, but difference does not necessarily degenerate into conflict and conflict does not necessarily degenerate into violence, ethnic cleansing, or genocide. At the moment, we're in a very hard situation. Um, the Armenians had won this war between the two republics 
1994. And sadly, the opportunity that they had to make some compromise, to come to some solution, uh, did not occur. Uh, and then the Azerbaijanis, in their frustration and now backed by Turkey and Israel, uh, launched this war on September 27th and uh, beat the Armenians. And, and now we have a partial ethnic cleansing, another ethnic cleansing going on. So in the short run, there's unlikely to be the kind of beautiful image that Zaur put forth. But what I always tell my students is pessimism leads to the right, leads to conservatism, cynicism, and that's not where I would want young people to go. And optimism, even utopianism, can lead uh, toward uh, the possibility of imagining alternative futures. So I applaud Zauer's vision. And maybe if a if someone like Zauer Gassimov and Ronald Sunni of these two different nations, who are, by the way, friends, we, we uh, had nice lunches in, in Istanbul, if that could happen, uh, there's no reason why in the far other future, maybe not immediately, uh, people can learn to live one next to the other. Because Azerbaijan's not moving, Armenia's not moving, Turkey and Georgia aren't moving. Uh, we have to learn to live next to one another. Well, thank you very much. What a, what a good note to, to end this conversation on. There's still some some hope or optimism or at least the need for optimism that, that you've underlined um, and I think we will probably conclude um, here we've covered I think a lot of ground but there's obviously a lot of homework for for us to do so thank you very much for coming on the program Ronald Suni, Zaur Gasimov and thanks for listening to another episode of International History Now. And we're leaving you with a recording by Rashid Beybut of another Soviet-era singer of Azerbaijani extraction with origins in Karabakh, um, but singing a song in Armenian about Bülbül, the nightingale of Karabakh. The bird lives on these mountains. The word is Persian. <laughs>